All right, let's go to Luke chapter 6. We are, uh, when we last left our Jesus, he was calling precisely 12 of his disciples, and he designated them apostles, uh, which gave them a leadership uh, function in the greater community. And uh, he chose 12 of them for not 11 and not 13, but 12 precisely because he was making a big statement about who he was and about what his mission was to renew Israel, to call forth out of Israel, a renewed Israel, uh, an Israel that was faithful to him and that followed him and that re-embodied the mission that God had given Israel generations and generations and generations before. Now, we pick up the narrative right after that calling. Verse 17, Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. So you've got three levels of folks. You've got his 12, you have a large crew of disciples, and then you have crowds that are coming there to be healed by him and to hear him. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his what? Disciples. All right, so this isn't a teaching about how to enter the kingdom. This is a teaching given to those following Jesus. Looking at his disciples, he said, and and here we embark on a very familiar passage, and its familiarity actually robs the punch that this would have packed. So we're going to spend lots of time talking about how significant and shocking these words would have been. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for this is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Let's close in prayer. Right? I mean, that's kind of like, oh, okay. And and the fact of the matter is we don't believe him. We just don't. I mean, we can all pretend like we believe him, but we don't believe him. We don't believe him. We do not in any way, shape, or form believe this. No way. Who wins the lottery in our world and says, oh, wretched man or woman that I am, when you win the lottery? Nobody says that. And nobody walks around saying, hey, you know what? I'm blessed because I'm utterly poor. Nobody does that. If you look at the Christian bestseller lists, they're all about how to be more blessed Right when it comes to finances and material prosperity. So there's a sense in which we just don't believe it. And we can pretend like we believe it. And if you've been in church, you've heard these words. They're nice, cute, little Thomas Kincaid sayings that have utter irrelevance to our lives because this is the antithesis of the American dream. Right, The American dream really is to be rich, well-fed, spoken well of, right, and full of laughter and joy. And, and, and it sounds like what Jesus is doing is he's calling what we think is blessing, that's actually a curse, and what we think of being cursed is actually being blessed. And, and, and all the good church people here know this, but none of us believe it. None of us obey it. Certainly none of us would look at this and say, nope, that's actually right. 
Far more of us want to just explain this away, tone it down, domesticate Jesus a little bit on this point. And so before we go into what it means, I just, my, my, my heart is that it punches you like it punched me, which is just, okay. And then he moves on about loving your enemies, like that, that's easier or something, right? I mean, it's, this, is, this section of Luke is the least obeyed section of the teaching of Jesus in the American church. Loving your enemies and living the upside-down economic kingdom. Now, this is also one of the most misunderstood passages of Jesus because it's easy to make a lot of false turns. You can over-spiritualize these and make them all about internal, or you can under-spiritualize these and make them all about your external circumstances. You can make these all about the present, or you can make them all about the future. Neither of those is right. It's both. You, you can make these sound like they're condemning wealth in and of itself and glorifying poverty and hunger. Neither of those is right. What Jesus is doing here is so brilliant and so more radical than what we normally give him credit for. We just want to take a very slow, deliberate time through what exactly he's saying. Because if you get to the place where you begin to see life this way, You live in a completely different world. So, what is Jesus doing? The key, I think, is to understand the first word that he uses. Blessed are the... It's the first word. Blessed are the poor. Now, where have we come across the word poor in Luke's account? Okay. I spend a lot of time putting these things together, and clearly they're making an impact. Clearly, you go home and marinate. Maybe I should go back to modeling, because I feel like maybe I'm failing. So Jesus, why would you shake your head at that, Justin? You know. You know. You, you're the one person that thinks I'm handsome. I model for her all the time. Now, What in the world is Jesus doing? Well, when you talk about good news to the poor, we've come across that word. I guess I won't ask for any more feedback. We'll just go to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus gives his most important teaching, like that will define his whole ministry, and we spent a couple of weeks on it. That that one, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Who are the poor exactly? Now, One of the things that I want you to notice is the poor includes the economically disadvantaged, but it's bigger than that. So, Jesus, verse 16, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where this was written. And he quotes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now what Luke has done is he's then shown us who the poor are because immediately after the sermon, after Jesus' rejection, he starts casting out demons, he's healing lepers, he's healing a paralytic guy and having him walk. Jesus shows us who the poor are. And and Luke does this in particular because of all the people now Jesus starts encountering. The poor turn out to be all of those hungry and thirsty for that new thing that God is doing. It's the economically disadvantaged, yes, but it's the humble. It's the meek. It's the folks for whom the present world order isn't that awesome. The ones who are hungry and thirsty for what God is doing. 
Now, this understanding of poor is confirmed when you go back to Isaiah 61. Flip back there. Isaiah 61. Notice, this is the passage Jesus quotes. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the uh, prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And and if you remember, which you don't, obviously, but if if you remember, just picking on you, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the part that Jesus leaves out in his own version, which is interesting. To comfort all who what? Mourn. So isn't it interesting? The first two that Jesus mentions have to do with being poor and mourning. And that's the context of Isaiah 61. To comfort all those who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Do you see now we've got laughing? Those who weep now will be laughing. So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is carrying on the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Warning those who are assured of their insider status that they're in danger and those that are confident in their outsider status. No, they're actually placed in an advantage in a very strange way. The poor turn out to be those who've been marginalized, those who've been disinherited, those who've been disenfranchised, those who are economically disadvantaged, those who are hungry and thirsty for this new thing that God is doing. Does that include economics? Yes, but it's bigger than that. Flip back to Isaiah 57. We get a picture of who the poor actually are. Isaiah 57. Verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is what? Now listen, I'm in a great mood. I love this stuff. Clearly I'm alone. To revive... But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So, one of the things that Isaiah is saying is that God places special favor on those who hunger for his work. Those, Those for whom the present world order isn't working out so awesome. Those, those that are humble and dependent, who mourn, who, who literally are weeping over their exile back in the day this was written, but also who are mourning for all of the injustice and all of the evil and all of the oppression. Those people he calls contrite, he calls them poor. Go, if you would, to Isaiah 66, you get the same sort of image. So Jesus is borrowing from the prophetic tradition, so that poor, and I'm overmaking this point on purpose, because I don't want you to think when we get to poor and rich, it's purely economics. That's how we understand it. That's not how they understood it. It includes economics, but it's bigger. It's really your attitude towards God. See, the point I'm trying to make... The point I'm trying to make is simply this. When Jesus speaks of the poor, those who mourn, those who are hungry, those who are persecuted, that's all one kind of person. That's not four different people. That's one kind of person. And when he speaks of the rich and the well-fed and those who laugh now and those who are spoken well of, that's another kind of person. He's not contrasting four and four. He's contrasting two kinds of people that he is encountering in the course of his ministry. He's come to preach good news to the poor. Who are the poor? 
All of those disenfranchised and marginalized and dispossessed. All of those who are hungering for God to keep His promise. And He's going to come across people who are well-fed and rich. And it's not just economics that He's talking about. The word well-fed literally means satisfied. Those for whom the present world order is awesome. Hey, and I've had people say this to me. Why would I accept Jesus when my way of living has worked out so well? Why would, I, why would I go to generosity when greed has worked? When ambition has worked? Why would I forgive my enemies when revenge has worked for me? Why would I fight for purity when sleeping around has been great? And so what Jesus is saying is He is bringing about something new. It will be fulfilled and consummated in the future, but it is here now. And there are two kinds of people that He's encountering Those that hunger for this new thing and those that don't. And he's getting into why. And he's woeing those that don't and he's blessing those who do. So you get to Isaiah 66, it's the same thing. Verse 2, second part of verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So, when Jesus gets to Luke 6, he's talking to his disciples. He's not saying, hey, Here's a great way to come into my kingdom. Here's some new laws you've got to follow. What he's saying instead, in the prophetic tradition carried forward in Isaiah and other places, is listen, those for whom the present world order is satisfying, you are content, you're not hungry for anything else because you're incredibly attached to it, there's bad news. Because that world order is about to die. And if you're attached to it, you may perish with it also. Those for whom this present world order is full of suffering and mourning, poverty of spirit and maybe poverty of circumstance, God's, this new thing that God is doing will bring about presently and in the future everything that you're really hungering for. So, big point. Jesus is talking about four different kinds of people on each side of these. He's talking about two different kinds of people. One who's hungry for the thing God's doing and one who's not. Now Luke shows us these binaries all over the place. Flip, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. Are you out there, brothers and sisters? Are you awake? Are you there? Luke chapter 12. Jesus is is all throughout the Gospel of Luke He's talking about rich and poor. And again, all that Isaiah work was to show you rich and poor were economic, yes, but deeper than that. It's both. It's not just internal and it's not just external. It's both. The rich are at a disadvantage when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus. Why? Because the present stuff's working out pretty good. Easy to get attached to it. The poor are actually at an advantage. Not because the poverty itself is the blessing, but because it... Any deficiency in this world makes you hunger for the new thing Jesus is doing. Now, do you think this has any relevance to 21st century Americans living in Fullerton, California? You think? Oh, I think. Maybe that's why you're so quiet. Or maybe you're just sleepy. I don't know. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus doesn't really respond well to these sorts of things. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me as a judge or arbiter between you? 
So now Jesus is going to take this opportunity to address a couple of things. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Who believes that one? No one in this room. I believe if someone wrote me a check for $20,000, my life would be better. Do you believe that? Yeah, don't leave me alone up here. You do too. (laughs) Right? So the issue isn't the abundance of possessions. The issue is believing that life comes from them. Do you see what he's doing? So then he says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there will be, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the definition of the kind of rich that Jesus is speaking of. Self-satisfied. Right? Totally at home. Every comfort, every convenience, totally attached to the current way things are running. When he says well-fed, he doesn't just mean how many meals do you have a day. He's talking about being satisfied. Being content in, in precisely life circumstance. This is it. And then notice, Jesus kind of flips our expectations on their head when verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So here's an example of somebody who totally fits the definition of economic rich, but also rich in the Jesus sense, right? Not just rich, but attached to the riches, finding life in the riches. Thinking that life consists in an abundance of possessions. And then Jesus tells, I don't know of another parable where, where like the sin is so great the dude gets zapped immediately. And he flips it on its head. So in a culture that defined riches with God's blessing, I mean, this would have been really shocking, don't you think? Why, it's so quiet today. Go to Luke 16. Jesus is always juxtaposing rich and poor. So verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. So is this hungry? This is poor? This is mourning? Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when The beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, this is a very Jewish way of talking about life in the age to come in the most positive sense. This is what, if you were Jewish, this is what you hoped for. The rich man died and was also buried. In Hades, which is the opposite of Abram's side, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now when we get to this parable in 2020, we will spend some good time on all these words and images. But just notice the general. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received 
your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. So here's the reversal. Right? What's the good news to the poor? Well, it includes the fact that it's not necessarily your poverty that's the blessing, but whatever deficiency you're currently facing can actually lead you to hunger for the thing that God is doing now and in the future. And that there's a great reversal coming. And that Jesus is hinting at this all the way around. And as American Christians, we don't believe it. We don't believe him. I mean, let's just say that. We just don't really believe it. We want to believe it, but we're immersed in the American dream, which would be the opposite of this. Then Jesus does this other thing, which is so brilliant. Go to 18, chapter 18. We'll do a couple of stories there, and then we'll let us all off the hook. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Notice this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now, do we need to know anything else about this guy to know that he's rich? Okay, four of us. Awesome. You don't have to know anything else about this guy, right? He is rich in the biblical sense. Why? How do we know? He's self-satisfied. Instead of its wealth, it's his own righteousness. He doesn't need the new thing God's doing because he's doing, he's doing just fine. So rich, do you see, isn't just an economic category. It is the posture of the heart that does not require God's visitation. Hey, I'm good. I got my own righteousness stored up for me. We're good. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now I know nobody in the church is like this, but let's just pretend for a second. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, Pharisees were middle class. Tax collectors, though, were normally middle to upper. Why? Well, because they were enriching themselves on the surcharges they would level. That they were required to take. They would take a surcharge that you couldn't argue with. And so typically they were wealthy. It was kind of the only comfort in being a tax collector. So... Here's a Pharisee who wouldn't have been considered rich in economic terms, and here's a tax collector that would have. Now notice what happens here. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he stood by himself out of separation and judgment. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth out of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance for a different reason. Right? The Pharisee wanted to stay clean. The tax collector realized he was unclean. So he stands apart from everybody. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast. That is an expression of anguish that's normally reserved for women in ancient culture. Okay, so the, it is a Jewish way of telling you he is unbelievably broken up. But beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me. It literally reads, God make atonement for me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, he didn't even mention the Pharisee, the other guy, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. That is exactly the teaching of Jesus that he is making in Luke chapter 6. So, who is rich? The tax collector or the Pharisee? Who's rich in this story, in the biblical sense? Mm, ooh, ooh, ooh. 
In the economic sense, right? The tax collector is probably rich. But in the sense that Jesus is meaning, it's the Pharisee. He's the one who's haughty and prideful and self-satisfied. He's the one who doesn't require God's visitation. But the rich guy turns out to be the poor guy. Why? Because he can't even look at the heavens. And he beats his breast. And he says, God, have mercy. Make atonement for me, a sinner. And then Jesus draws out the point that's true for everybody. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So what Jesus is doing and what Luke then sets up are these contrasts, not between four different sets of people, but between the kind of person who is open and hungry for this thing that God is doing and the kind of person who isn't. And there is a correspondence to economic circumstances, certainly, but it's not just that. We've just come across a guy whose maybe economic circumstances weren't all that awesome. They were better than a lot of folks, but it was his heart that made him selfish and self-satisfied and proud. You look like you need one more. (laughs) Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life in the age to come? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. Which we'll get into what that means. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And then Jesus quotes to this ruler the second table of the Ten Commandments about loving your neighbor, but he leaves out the one that says do not covet. So, the ruler says in verse 21, all of those I've kept since I was a boy. I'm doing pretty good. Jesus heard this. He said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, The man became very sad because he was very wealthy. And then Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. Now, oh my goodness, there could not be a more upside-down teaching of Jesus than this one because by definition, in Jewish culture, if you were rich, you were in. I mean, being rich was proof that you were in. The, the stipulations of the Old Covenant included things like health and lots of livestock and, and a fruitful family. I mean, this was if the rich weren't in, then nobody's in. I mean, if I said, hey, yeah, Billy Graham, he missed it. Heretic. I mean, you'd go, if Billy Graham's not, I mean, who, who can be saved? Which is exactly what the disciples say next. If the rich aren't in automatically, then who can be saved? And then Jesus says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. But the rich, he teaches, are at a disadvantage. What's that disadvantage? It's working out pretty well. Right? I've literally had people say to me, why would I turn my life upside down? It's working out pretty well. I'm just going to wait until I'm on my deathbed and then say yes to Jesus. Good luck with figuring out when that is, by the way. But isn't there a sense in which in American culture, it's like if you present Jesus as only the answer to felt needs, what do you do with somebody who doesn't have felt needs? Who just says, hey, I'm pretty good. The present world order is working out pretty well. So Jesus isn't saying having stuff 
is necessarily evil. He's just saying it puts you at a severe disadvantage. Now, how many of you, when you think of rich people, think of someone else? I won't bore you with all the global statistics that show that we're like the most prosperous group of people that's ever walked the planet. And it's part of the demonic principalities and powers that none of us feel rich. Right? I think of Newport people. Right? I think of, I I, I mean, I think of loads of other people, but historically, globally, I'm rich. And it shows how demonic our world is that I don't feel that way. But the second thing is, who would Jesus woe? Well, he'd be woeing someone like me. I mean, yeah, there are ups and downs, but the world, I mean, it's, I expect that it's going to be okay. I expect that I'm going to have a series of great life experiences, and yes, there'll be some bummers, but it'll all turn out okay. And I've got Jesus on top of it. It'll be awesome. Right? That's my goal. I want to be spoken well of, and I want to enjoy life, and I want my Jesus too. So in that scenario, Jesus is just baptizing the American dream. What Jesus is doing here is so undercutting it that each and every one of you is actually put at a disadvantage. Why? Well, because it's so easy to grow attached to the world order that's passing away and the danger is that you will pass away with it. And so Jesus is just giving examples of people who miss it. Here's a rich young man who wouldn't part with his wealth. He goes away sad. But here's... Luke tells another story about a rich guy who gets it. Go to Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through a man who was there by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, baby. This guy would have been one of the richest people in Israel. He, Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short... He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead, climbed on a sycamore fig tree, said to him uh, to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and were offended, and we'll get to why later. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, which he had, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So, we got a rich man who walks away. No thanks. And then we've got a rich man who says, oh, I got it. Repentance means taking my riches and being part of God's answer to provide comfort to the poor and to the hungry. Oh, got it. Oh, we're blessed to be a blessing. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. Now, more quietness. I give, I have here before me an offering basket. Very fancy. Ikea. Probably cost them 10 cents and charge us $7.99. So we hand these out during our services. Now, what is this? Is it, I mean, and you can, you can do the offering thing, and, and on the one hand, you could easily come to the conclusion, okay, well, this, this is the reminder that God needs my money. Does God need your money? No, he's got cattle on a thousand hills, he really doesn't need 10% of what little amount you're making, okay? Even if you do that. I mean, he, really not true. Oh, oh, this is the reminder, the church needs the money. Now, in one sense, that's 
kind of true. I mean, if you want to have lights and I mean that, yes. But I can get other jobs, right? The modeling thing, I'm not lying when I say I got a whole thing waiting for me. Right? I mean, there are churches all around the world that don't have 20 acres of property and take big offerings and have paid staffs, right? We don't need that. So this isn't a reminder that the church needs your money. This, let this represent not just giving to church, but let this represent generosity in all of its forms. Then this represents my continued revolt against the greatest threat to my allegiance to Jesus. That's what this represents. See, it's not because God needs it and it's not because the church needs it. It's because you do. And I do. Because here's the game I play. So I'm a pastor, which, you know, is interesting. I, 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 I get paid by the church, so I model tithing. And I don't, so we give 10% to the church off the top out of our gross salary. And then we give anything over and above that. We give to like... Uh, World Vision or Compassion International or Campus Crusade. I mean, we do all of that. And then, then I sit down with what's left over. And guess what I do with it? Well, this part's mine, right? I pay God off. Is this just me? Am I alone in the pay God off scenario? <laughs> right? I want God to bless me. And so he says, if I give to him, he'll give to me. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to him. Right? And then the rest of it's what? That's mine. Boy, biblically, that is so not true. That's why Paul doesn't reiterate tithing in the New Testament. What he does is he says, whatever God leads you to give, which means 10% isn't a final thing. It can be whatever kind of percent God puts on your heart. But most of us don't even ask because most of us believe that even if you do participate in this, the rest is yours. Now, this isn't like a pitch to put money in this when it comes around later. This is a pitch to understand in the eyes of Jesus, the greatest threat to you is your attachment to this world. And the biggest way our world defines attachment is through comfort, convenience, nice homes, nice cars, nice careers, being well-known, famous, popular, spoken well of, and Jesus undercuts all of it. You have to understand, if at the heart of you is the desire to have a nice, comfortable life, Jesus will work against that. If at the heart of you is hunger and thirst because you're sick of what you see, ah, now there's something we can work with. See, when I was younger, especially when I was single, I prayed that Jesus would not return until I got married. Okay, that has been the prayer of bachelors. I'll let you figure out why, but that's been the prayer of bachelors for years. Married now, but the older I get, the more suffering I see. I cannot handle another crisis on social media. I just, I can't. I'm I'm crisis out. I can't handle, I mean, it's so much. There are so much evil and so much darkness. Now, that is not the blessing, but it can drive you to the blessing, which is 
I'm ready for him to come back. It'd be fine. If he, he wants to show up like in five minutes, I'm, I'm totally good. I'm tired of, of rapes and murders and genocide. I'm tired of geopolitics and warfare. I'm, tire, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the darkness in me. I'm tired of disabilities and handicaps and diseases. I'm tired of it. My temptation is to think that somehow things can manage that. Mourning and weeping. But Jesus just says, no, no, life isn't found in any of those things. So you might be here and things are going great. Okay. You are in danger. And the antidote is to stay in touch with the ugliness of the world and practice outrageous generosity. And there might be some of you here for whom the world is dark and it's bleak. And what Jesus would say is, that isn't the blessing, but it puts you at an advantage because you actually hunger for this thing that Jesus is doing. And so this morning, I just want you to close your eyes. I don't know how this hits you. It's kind of a two by four to my head. And we're going to spend some time, extended time in worship. And um, I want to just pray that God would lead you however, you however he would lead you. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. This isn't about feeling guilty. This isn't about being ashamed. That, those are unproductive things. This is about letting the, sh- the light and grace of Jesus shine on those parts of our hearts that are simply too attached to this present order. And so, Father, send your spirit, we pray, to shine light, to bring conviction, to bring freedom, to bring joy. Father, this just strikes, this teaching strikes at the heart of how we see what good life actually is. And so we need your grace, we really do, to tear down the strongholds and the lies. And help us, God, to be humble, not entitled or selfish people. We have, I have so much. Lord, would you pry my fingers open? to let that be used for the blessing of the nations, that you might get credit and that we might be free.